This is Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi, two of the top web bloggers in the legal profession. And yes, they are attorneys, one from California and one from Massachusetts, squaring off on legal news and legal observations. Lawyer to Lawyer is sponsored by Law.com, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could listen today to Lawyer to Lawyer. This is Bob Ambrogi from Massachusetts. And this is Craig Williams coming to you from the land of Caucasus, Iowa, uh, on a dreary and cold morning. I write a blog called May It Please the Court. Yeah, and I write the blog called Law Sites, Media Law, and also uh, Legal Blog Watch. And uh, today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to talk to two attorneys who have both just published books. Their books are very different, deal with very different topics, but both are derived from their experiences in the law. Well, first, we welcome Carolyn Elephant. Carolyn is a returning guest and founder and principal attorney of the law offices of Carolyn Elephant. She also writes the blog MyShingle.com. Carolyn is with us today to promote her new book, Solo by Choice, How to Be the Lawyer You Always Wanted to Be. Solo by Choice is dedicated to every lawyer who ever wanted to run the show but worried that going solo was career suicide. Welcome, Carolyn. Thanks. Carolyn, it's your first book. How did you get involved with writing it? I guess I would say that writing the book grew out of my blog. After I had been blogging at my shingle for about a year or two, I thought that I had built up a pretty good body of work and that I could just slap the posts together and put them into a book. Carolyn, tell us what the book is about. The book is basically, I I guess I refer to it as a why-to and a how-to on solo practice. The why to discusses some of the reasons that lawyers today should consider solo practice, why it's a way to find financial success and autonomy in the practice of law, why it's a way to gain more work-life flexibility. And I know that for people who are solos who are listening to this, all of that sounds like a no-brainer, but the fact of the matter is, is that in the broader parts of the profession, most people, I think, still regard solo practice as a last resort or something reserved for people who couldn't find a job. And so I thought that it was important to try to open people's eyes towards solo practice. And the second part of the book is really a how-to, how to start a practice that is suitable for the 21st century and that takes advantage of many of the benefits of technology that we have now that weren't available when I started my firm uh, 14 years ago. Did your blog, My Shingle, help you get a uh, book deal? I think that the blog was helpful. I think that in, ad- in addition to the blog, I had been also been writing a column for um, Law.com's small business uh, publication, and I had had a couple of uh, chapters in ABA books. And so I think that the collective body of work showed the eventual publisher that I was a good bet in terms of my ability to write. Carolyn, you're, and I should mention that you, you, uh, you and I are co-authors of, of the Legal Blog Watch blog for, for Law.com. In, in your book, you talk about, uh, uh, and your book is not out yet, as I understand it. It's coming out, when is it coming out? Well, it actually, yesterday I got the first hard copy, so I have actually held it in my hand. Um, for people who have pre-ordered through my publisher, they should be getting their copies uh, late next week. And if you're going through Amazon, there's still three to four weeks in terms of actually getting it because it has to go through all the distribution channels. But it is the, the first run has been completed and the books are available. All right. In the, in the book, you talk about the making the great escape. Can you elaborate on that? 
That's really the chapter that deals with the planning for a practice. It talks about the, the planning and the actual departure. So it talks about, first of all, um, the different um, situations that you might come to solo practice from. Some people have the luxury of planning a practice while they're at a law firm and taking a year to really write a business plan and chart their course. Some people, you know, for example, some um, attorneys who are laid off really only have a month or two to decide what they're going to do. So that chapter discusses some of that. And then another topic that it discusses is disengaging from your previous position. And so it talks about a lot of the ethics rules that one needs to follow in leaving a law firm, in soliciting clients, um, and also in figuring out um, and just leaving the law firm and, you know, figuring out what property belongs to somebody else. There's even a, a little insert in that chapter that talks about who owns the blog. If you've been working at a firm and you start a blog that's very popular and you leave, obviously the attorney will want to take it with them, but the firm will also have an interest in keeping rights to it. So it discusses those types of issues because it used to be that, you know, leaving, it was very easy what belonged, you know, the computer belonged to your firm and, you know, you had your, you know, your, maybe some of your work product, but now with technology, things sort of cross over lines in terms of ownership. So it discusses a bunch of those issues regarding disengagement. Do you think that many attorneys are afraid of uh, going out on their own, and do you cover that in your book, what, the kind of challenges or decisions that they face? Yes, I did try to address that because I know that people um, do have a fear. I mean, for people, and the fears, the fears are very different. I think that for attorneys who are working at large firms or who have very secure government positions, the fear is the loss of security or committing com- career suicide. I think the fears for lawyers who perhaps weren't able to find a job or who were fired from a job and can't find another job, their fear is, well, is this something that I can actually do? And so I do try to address uh, those topics in the book. I'm just wondering, uh, there have certainly been other books written before about uh, managing and marketing and even starting a law practice. Uh, What makes your book uh, distinct from those that have come before it? Well, as I said, the first thing that I think really sets it apart is the why-to part, making the case for solo practice, making the case for why you should consider it. And also talking about, you know, it's, it's even though at my shingle I like to focus on the highlights of solo practice, there are certainly drawbacks, and those are things that I point out, too. I don't want people to, you know, go and quit their jobs and start a firm and go into it with rose-colored glasses and then write me a nasty letter three months later. So I give a very balanced view of what some of the challenges are. So I think the first thing that sets it apart is the why, too. The second um, feature that I think sets my book apart is that I recognize that people come to solo practice from whole array of different paths. You might come from a large firm, from government, from solo, um, and, and even start a firm as a part-time parent. And I have a section of my book that deals specifically with each of those situations. Most of the books that are on the market now, I think, tend to focus more on, they're, they're much broader and more generic, just talking about any person who might start a law firm. And I think also the books that are on the market now tend to focus more on somebody who might start a general practice or a more traditional solo practice. I make clear that if you want to start a practice on um, drug law or health care or securities litigation, all of those things are, are possible. 
Is your book hardback, softback? Uh, it's a, it's paperback. It's about three hundred pages. And, and who pu- who published it? It's Decision Books, and um, the Decision Books line is um, I guess their tagline is for a life in the law. So most of their books focus on how to have a life in the law or how to use your law degree um, to find career satisfaction. So they have other books such as Should You Go to Law School, you know, a hundred other reasons, ways to use a law degree. They're coming out with a book on um, retirement for lawyers. So that's sort of the genre of books that they tend to publish. Carolyn, it sounds like the focus of your book, uh, or at least the intended audience of your book, uh, would be lawyers who are not yet in solo practice. What about lawyers who are in solo practice? Is there any reason for them to buy this book? Yes, absolutely. Um, as I said, in one, one of the components of the how-to section of the book is there's a fairly extensive chapter, a few chapters on marketing, obviously not as extensive as a book solely dedicated to marketing, but there are 60 pages of the book dedicated to different types of marketing, ranging from traditional marketing to building relationships to marketing in a digital age. And because my in my own practice, my primary way of marketing myself has always been to leverage the power of the Internet. That was something that I was able to write and have some familiarity with. There's also parts of the book that deal with um, examine different ways of setting fees, um, billable hour, value billing approaches, flat fees. And um, one, one thing I should also point out with the book, and one reason it's called Solo by Choice is, you know, I have my own personal preferences and my own quirks about how I run my own practice, but things are different for everybody. And for me, as an attorney in a very niche market where I can attract corporate clients, my concerns are going to be very different from somebody dealing with consumer clients. So the reason the book is called Solo by Choice is because I try to offer different choices and identify a number of different ways of doing things rather than just saying this is what you need to do. So for somebody who's already practicing, the book may open their eyes to a different approach that they haven't considered, and maybe it'll be something that works for them. Should one of your regular blog readers pick up and buy this book? Are they going to be seeing things that they've seen before, or is this new material? There is a lot of new material. I mean, there have been, I have certainly put some teasers out on my shingle, and there have been some things that I have worked out through my shingle. I think that, you know, I had one post on my shingle a while back about, you know, some departing a law firm and the type of letters that you need to write, and I did a compilation of resources, and in part that was to assist me with writing the chapter. But the book has um, a, lot more, um, a lot more material than I've posted on my shingle. When I post on my shingle, I usually try to link a particular lesson about starting a practice into a current event story. So, you know, um, in, in the book, I speak about these topics more generically. So people may have seen one or two of these things on my shingle, but, um, but this is put together in a much more comprehensive fashion. And I think the other benefit of a book, I mean, as much a fan as I am of blogging and as much as I recognize the repository of information that's out, not just at my blog, but all the other solo blogs, um, you know, when you're thinking about starting a practice or maybe sitting down to figure out a different path that you want your firm to take, sometimes it's helpful to have a book. You can, you know, sit out on the beach or read it in bed late at night. And so it's a little less cumbersome to read than, um, you know, going through old blog posts. Carolyn, we're running out of time, but before we break, we'd like to give you an opportunity to tell our listeners where they can find out more about your book and more about you. 
Okay. Um, right now, if you the the book is for sale on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. If you were to order it now, there would be a three to four week. Uh, gap um, in terms of getting the book because it has to go through distribution channels. If you'd like to get a copy more quickly, you can send an email to my publisher at info at decisionbooks.com, and he will send you a form. You can order directly from him. It's $45, and there's no shipping charge going through the publisher. Um, you can always find me online at myshingle.com. My blog is undergoing a facelift right now, and on Monday I will have a beautiful new Lex blog platform for my shingle. And so you're going to see a lot more um, exciting information there. And if you're interested in contacting me, I'm at carolyn.elephant at gmail.com. We'd like to thank Carolyn Elephant for being on Lawyer to Lawyer today. We will be taking a short break. When we return, we'll hear from attorney Alan Dershowitz and talking about his new book, Finding Jefferson, A Lost Letter, A Remarkable Discovery, and the First Amendment in an Age of Terrorism. Check out our Lawyer to Lawyer host blogs, J. Craig Williams' blog at mayhavepleasethecourt.com, Likewise, Robert Ambrogi's blog at LegalLine.com for daily legal observations, perspective, and, of course, a healthy dose of humor and wit. We invite you to visit Law.com for timely legal news and in-depth resources. From daily headlines to practice-specific updates, Law.com provides up-to-date information to those working in the legal profession. As part of its coverage, Law.com is proud that J. Craig Williams' blog, May It Please the Court, and Robert Ambrogi's blog, Law Sites, are part of its blog network. Don't wait any longer. Visit Law.com today and get free subscriptions of our Newswire newsletter with the top legal stories of the day. Or sign up for a free trial subscription to one of our Practice Center sections. If you found us in the podcast library of iTunes, thanks for listening. Check out some of our other shows at LegalTalkNetwork.com and become a member. It's free. A video settlement documentary can be the most powerful and persuasive way to bring about a speedy settlement in your client's case. The Boston Media Group has a staff of television professionals with 20 years' experience writing and producing compelling stories just like the ones you've seen on 60 Minutes or Dateline. We put a human face on the lawsuit with compelling interviews, dramatizations, and visual presentations of the fact. Think of it as a video opening argument that will compel the attorneys on the other side to settle. Call us for a consult at 800-317-5221. That's 800-317-5221. Or check out our website at bostonmediagroup.com. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams. And this is Bob Ambrogi. In the second half of the program today, we're going to be talking to Harvard Law School professor Alan Dershowitz. Professor Dershowitz is a Brooklyn native who's been called the nation's most peripatetic civil liberties lawyer and one of its most distinguished defenders of individual rights. While he is known for defending clients such as Anatoly Sharansky, Klaus von Bülow, O.J. Simpson, Michael Milliken, and Mike Tyson, he continues to represent numerous indigent defendants, and he takes half of his cases pro bono. He is the Felix Frankfurter Professor of Law at Harvard Law School, and he has a new book out entitled Finding Jefferson, A Lost Letter, A Remarkable Discovery, in the First Amendment in an Age of Terrorism. 
Welcome to the program, Professor Dershowitz. Oh, thank you so much for having me on the show. I appreciate it. Well, let's start off with you having, telling us about your new book. Well, it's an amazing story. I was in a bookstore with my son, just looking around, and um, this is a bookstore that also occasionally sells autographs and letters, and I asked them if they had any old Brooklyn Dodger autographs or anything I might be interested in. And she said, no, but they just got a letter that somebody sold them uh, that had been written by Thomas Jefferson back in 1801. And I said, wow, Thomas Jefferson, he's one of my heroes. I've just written a book about the Declaration of Independence. Let me see it. And she said, I said, is it interesting letter? She said, I don't know. I haven't read the letter. It's, just, it's, it's interesting because it has the autograph of Thomas Jefferson. And I went and read the letter, and it was unbelievable. It was all about things that I've been thinking and writing about for the last 45 years of my career. Uh, free speech, uh, terrorism, incitement to violence and incitement to terrorism, where you draw the line, uh, the role of judges in suppressing uh, free speech. And so I immediately entered into a negotiation, an unsuccessful one. Uh, I wasn't able to reduce the price. And I bought the letter, and I bought it on a Friday, and I was so excited. By Monday, I had written uh, several chapters of the book already, and uh, I just decided this is a book I had to write because it was almost as if Thomas Jefferson was writing to me from the grave. This letter could have been written to me. It was so much a function of everything I had been writing about and thinking about and teaching about. Well, how does what Jefferson had to say in his letter relate to events going on in the world today? Very, very much so. And in, in my book, I write a letter to Thomas Jefferson uh, in which I tell him what's going on in the world today, and I ask for essentially his advice as to how he would deal with these problems. The issue that he was dealing with was what happens if ministers and other religious leaders get up and make speeches that incite other people to do violence? It sounds like he anticipated what some imams are doing now uh, around the world uh, in fomenting terrorism. And uh, he writes to another uh, person, and he says, look, um, it's a hard question. Uh, if, if, if imams or rabbis or ministers or priests incite terrorism, should we go after the religious leader, or should we just go after the poor, uh, ignorant subject? who might listen to the religious leader and go out and commit a crime of violence. And he says uh, his preference is to wait until the crime is committed, not to go after the speaker, because to go after the speaker would involve invoking the conscience of the judge as to what constitutes an incitement. And Jefferson didn't have much trust in federal judges. After all, the midnight judges had been appointed just before he was made president, and they were mostly federalists and they were elitists. He said he would trust uh, the average person on the jury much more, and he would wait until the crime, the ordinary crime, was committed and vigorously enforce the law. He said, as long as we have a marketplace of ideas, uh, we don't have to worry about what people say. Other people can respond in that open marketplace. And as long as we have laws punishing murder and other crimes, uh, we can wait until those crimes are committed. So that was his answer. Uh, I don't know whether he'd have the same answer today in a world where the crimes are so much more serious, uh, weapons of mass destruction potentially, in which there is no marketplace, certainly in some areas of the world where people incite without there being an opportunity to respond. But in the end, I speculate that looking at all of Thomas Jefferson's writings, he probably would stick with his freedom of speech rationale and have us take the risk of uh, terrible acts rather than try to anticipate them by going after the speaker. Does your letter back to Thomas Jefferson ask him some questions? 
It does. It basically says to him, look, you claim that there's a marketplace, and we lived in Virginia, and at the time of the founding, there was. There were these polite exchanges of letters, there were the salons in which people exchanged ideas. What if you went to a mosque and you heard an imam preaching immediate hatred, you know, hate America, uh, destroy the infrastructure, kill Americans, kill Christians, kill Jews, uh, would you still have the same views. Um, And what if you were told that we're not worried about a single act of murder, horrible as that is, but the potential of another 9-11 or even worse? Would you stick with your views? And, uh, you know, I kind of use the Socratic method that I always use as a law teacher to probe Jefferson's views. Uh, You know, I wish he would respond to my letters, but uh, that will have to wait. What about you, Professor Dershowitz? Do you agree with what you've interpreted to be Thomas Jefferson's position on this? I don't. Uh, What I do is I agree with his conclusion, but not with his reasoning. Uh, He argues that we have nothing to fear so long as we have available other resources to speak out, and we can afford to wait for the harm. I say we have much to fear. Uh, The marketplace of ideas hasn't proved to work in the 200 years since he talked about it. Um, And uh, he uh, he doesn't understand well enough from his own limited experience with the kind of violence that we have that there are great dangers in allowing free speech. So I conclude that I would be willing to tolerate those dangers, but I think that the cost-benefits are much, much closer on the costs than he does. So I don't agree with his analysis, but in the end, I too worry much more about a system of censorship in which the government, the judge, the president, the executive is empowered to decide uh, which speech is permitted and which speech is not permitted. But I think it com- I think that that freedom of speech comes with a very, very, very heavy cost. What kind of actions do you think Jefferson would take in the event when uh, the, after the crime does occur? Mm-hmm. And let's move it into today, where the crime is, as you noted, sometimes a 9/11 style crime. What, what do you think he would do? Mm-hmm. Well, we know that. Yeah, we know that because he was the first president to send in the Marines um, after terrorists. He was the president who sent the Marines, um, remember from the halls of Montezuma to the shores of Tripoli, to the shores of Tripoli to go after the Barbary pirates, which were Islamic terrorist extremists who were beheading American sailors, who were capturing American uh, passengers, who were enslaving American women and children. So he knew what to do. He sent in the Marines, and they very effectively um, uh, defeated the Barbary pirates and resulted in um, in in some kind of a cold peace with them for, for for years to come. He actually went over he and Adams before he was president when they were both in Europe and met with the chief ambassador of the North African Barbary states and said you have to stop this and and the person he reports this and it's in my book responds by saying no it's in the Quran we're obliged to kill you and we're not worried about you killing us because we are martyrs and if you kill us we will go to paradise there's no mention of the 72 virgins but everything else sounds very similar to what extremists would say today you know i don't want to paint with a broad brush the vast 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 majority of muslims in america and around the world are law abiding but he was dealing with a small number in North Africa who were not, and we're dealing with a number who were also not. So uh, he knew what to do. He knew when it was appropriate to send in the Marines, and he knew when it was inappropriate to uh, try to negotiate. He did both. He, he was president, as I understand it, when he wrote this letter. That's right. Uh, were he president uh, today, uh, how, how might he have uh, approached the issues domestically differently from what President Bush has done? 
Well, first of all, there's no way that Thomas Jefferson could be president today, because Thomas Jefferson was a deist. That is, he was not a Christian. He rejected the divinity of Jesus. He rejected the authenticity of uh, God's writing the, the Bible and the Ten Commandments. He was a secularist. His greatest contributions, he thought, were building the University of Virginia, which was the first secular university. Uh, he would today be called a secular humanist, and he wouldn't uh, win a single primary. He would not be eligible. Uh, Huckleby would beat him in a minute. Uh, and so he'd never be president, but you know, neither would uh, most of our founding fathers, neither would Lincoln uh, be president today. None of those people could compete in the soundbite. Uh, also, Jefferson was a terrible speaker. He never spoke. He mumbled his speeches. He didn't deliver his State of the Union message. Uh, but if he were around today, he'd be on the wrong side of a lot of issues. Uh, he believed that the future of America was an agrarian society, uh, that he hated uh, manufacturing and commerce. Uh, he believed the state should have all the power, not the federal government, although when he was president, he was not averse to exercising some pretty strong power. He bought the Louisiana Purchase without even consulting with Congress. So it depends on whether you're talking about Jefferson, the writer and the theoretician, or Jefferson, the practicing president. When he was president, he moved much closer to the Federalist uh, camp on many, many issues. For example, he opposed the Alien Sedition Act, um, uh, that is the act which made it a federal crime to criticize um, presidents and the government. But then when he became president, he urged New York and Virginia states to go after dissenters and people who were criti too overly critical and crossed the line of defamation. So, you know, like with most people, you have two Jeffersons, Jefferson in theory and Jefferson in practice. Jefferson in theory writes that all men are created equal, and in practice he doesn't, re doesn't release his slaves. He keeps his slaves and probably even has an inappropriate relationship with one of them. Well, I think I was thinking more of Jefferson the civil libertarian. I mean, how, yeah. how might his policies have been different regarding uh, monitoring uh, of terrorist activity domestically, yeah. regarding uh, habeas corpus issues? Uh, well, habeas corpus, again, he was of two minds. He wrote, when the Constitution was first enacted, he wrote to Madison, I quote the letter in the book, he wrote that, uh, why should we allow habeas corpus ever to be restricted? Habeas corpus is too valuable. We shouldn't allow that part of the Constitution that says it can be restricted in the event of insurrection or invasion. So in theory, he was uh, very much in favor of habeas corpus. When he becomes president and goes after um, uh, Aaron Burr uh, and, 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 tries, uh, and uses rough interrogation methods, essentially, on a witness against uh, Burr, and then throws him in jail and tries to get Congress to suspend the writ of habeas corpus so he can't get out on bail. So again, we have two Jeffersons. Uh, Jefferson, the objective, thoughtful writer, and Jefferson, the president, who believed that Burr was trying to undercut the, the country. He, he did famously say, Jefferson, that what's the use of all the laws if uh, the end result is the laws are used against us to undermine our democracy, that the law sometimes has to be bent uh, in order to prevent uh, terrorism or acts of that kind. So it would be very speculative to predict how he would have responded to 9-11. One thing I think is clear, he would not have allowed military commissions. He would have had trial by jury. He trusted juries very, very much. I don't think he would have had Guantanamo or anything like it. But uh, he would have been a tough president on terrorism. What is it about Jefferson that has uh, made him your hero? Well, he invented America, basically. Uh, he, uh, starting with the Declaration, and then with his letters and his influence, uh, 
invented the concept of a, co- a country that separates church from state, and in which the people go- rule, not the not the religious leaders, not the clerics. Uh, the thing that's amazing to me, and I wrote another book about this called Blasphemy, is how the religious right is trying to hijack Jefferson and the Declaration of Independence to turn it into a religious document because it mentions God, but the God it mentions, of course, is nature's God. And Jefferson was a strict separationist. He believed not only in separation of church and state, but strict separation of powers. Um, America, politically, is the offspring of Jefferson. America, economically, is the offspring of Hamilton. So, surprisingly, I'm not only a big admirer of Jefferson, I'm also an admirer of Hamilton. I didn't like the way he dealt with, uh, you know, controversy. He was not uh, a great uh, 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 predecessor to the alternate dispute resolution movement. He, he, he resolved his disputes by duels. I don't think we want to see that carried out in this country. And both his son was killed in a duel and he was killed in a duel. But Hamilton invented the American economy. He invented the Treasury Department. He invented the obligation of America to pay its debts and turned this into an economic superpower, whereas Jefferson, I think, invented the very political concepts that make us the uh, strongest civil liberties country in the world today. How do you think Jefferson would have handled the challenge brought by Michael Niedauer to uh, In God We Trust and God in the, in the uh, Pledge of Allegiance? I don't think he would have encouraged him bringing the lawsuit because he would say uh, it's not the most important issue uh, whether or not we invoke a kind of generic God. He would say probably save your thunder for you know teaching the Bible in the schools, which he was very much opposed to Jefferson. Jefferson wrote a letter to his nephew saying you shouldn't even study the Bible until you're 18 because you have to look at the Bible critically the way you would look at Thucydides. And if in the end you believe in God, as Jefferson did, he believed in a, a providence, a nature's God, that's fine. But he wrote to his nephew, if in the end your study brings you to disbelieve in God, that's fine too. And if there is a God, he will not punish you for disbelieving in him because he will reward you for having used your brain to come to whatever conclusion your reason brought you to. So I think he would be sympathetic to attempts to limit uh, the invocation of the deity in uh, public places, but he wouldn't have thought it was the highest priority. He himself uh, invoked God in the Declaration of Independence when he wanted to unify all Americans. But again, it was not the Christian God or the Judeo-Christian God. It was the God of nature. Professor Dershowitz, what is the, what's the state of the First Amendment in the country these days? What's your take on it? it well, it's stronger than it's ever been, uh, much stronger than it was in Jefferson's day, uh, much stronger than it was during the First World War, during the Second World War. The First Amendment is one of the few constitutional provisions that is actually stronger today. And I write in the book why. I explain to Jefferson why the First Amendment has not only survived but thrived whereas the Fourth Amendment, the Fifth Amendment, have suffered greatly in an age of terrorism. And I think the reason is because the media is so strong. The First Amendment not only protects the public, but it protects a very, very powerful media conglomerate. Uh, billion, billions of dollars worth of media money go into protecting and defending the First Amendment. So it's actually stronger today than it's ever been. And we're not in danger of losing our First Amendment. We are in danger of losing our Fourth, Fifth Amendments and some of our other provisions of the Constitution. Well, Professor Thurstowitz, we've just about reached the end of the program, so we'd like to have you tell our listeners where they can purchase your book. And also, we see on your website that um, you may be autographing copies of your book. Mm -hmm. Well, um, the book 
can be bought anywhere at Amazon.com and you know any of the major uh, bookstores. And it's always safe to get it on Amazon because you know they never run out. Um, I have um, I'm going to be in Miami this weekend, but not in any bookstores. So I think probably Amazon.com or major bookstores um, should be available. It's called Finding Jefferson, and I hope it's. I wrote it for 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 you know educated late public for lawyers um it should be an easy read and i if people read it and enjoy it i hope they'll write to me email me and uh, start a, a correspondence with me and we should mention that you also post on a regular basis on the huffington blog and you I are do. a blogger yeah. as well and i guess we should be thankful you didn't find that brooklyn dodgers letter that day but uh... <laughs> i went back uh, just before christmas because i love to buy christmas hanukkah presents for friends autographs and i went back looking for brooklyn dodger autographs and I bought, actually got a Bob Cousy, early Bob Cousy, Boston Celtics autograph from the same store, the Argosy Bookstore. Thank you very much for taking the time to be with us today. We're oh, very glad you could join us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And Craig, I look forward to talking to you again next week. We'll, we'll talk to you then, Bob. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. Lawyer to Lawyer has been sponsored by Law.com. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Som. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.